This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning and welcome to the show that's all about what's working and what's not in stocks and markets, otherwise known as the SNM show. I'm Julian Ng, together with my faithful colleague Tan Chung Han. And our guest today is Patrick Chang, CIO of CIMB Principal. We're going to talk about whether it's the right time to get back into China. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Good to have you here. Now, Patrick, a few years ago, uh, whenever a Chinese unit trust was uh, going to be launched, people would just sneak around a building and hand over their money, right? But uh, since that time, China has gone through a very rough patch. So give us a background of why CIMB has applied for this thing called uh, the Renminbi Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor License, or otherwise known by its very mouthful moniker, RQ Fee. Why has CIMB applied for this? Long story short, I think what we wanted to do uh, back in 2000, early, late 2015, was to look out for opportunities in China. We're bullish on China long term, right? And RQ Fee license is a predecessor to the Q Fee license, which gives us more flexibility in the onshore fixed income market as well as the equity markets. So with this license, it enables us to diversify into a lot of very liquid names in the Asian market which you don't have access to. That's key number one. Number two, basically we also want to actually tap into these markets, for example, in the fixed income market because there's a lot of very liquid fixed income uh, assets out there. Uh, as you probably know, China is now trying to liberalize, issuing lots of bonds. Uh, at the same time, there's also a lot of very high-tech companies in uh, the Asia market as well as the Shenzhen market, which we like to invest into. So overall, you know, this gives us a, a great diversification in terms of the kind of products that we have. Today, uh, we're not just a Malaysian equity uh, asset management company. We're an Asian, Asia-Pacific, ex-Japan-focused. Uh, uh, so some of our funds uh, do invest in China. We are long-term bullish on China. And so QV license gives us uh, a diversification tool uh, over the long term. I think the view about China is very conflicting. Uh, I think more people are concerned about China than there are people who are positive about China. So what do you say to those people who are still scared of uh, putting the money into China after having been burnt for the last few years? I think there's a lot of misconceptions about China, you know. When we talk to about Chinese market, it's like me talking to my dad. My dad is very bullish in China. <laughs> you know? you know, uh, my dad will always tell me China has the biggest population in the world. Uh, it has the best food and, and so forth, right? But when it comes to the investments, foreign investors, particularly in the Western world, perceive the Chinese market as, oh, you know, you've got a lot of uh, issues with the banking sector. You've got a lot of SOE issues. You've got a lot of MPLs in the banks and so forth, right? There's a lot of negativity. I think January last year highlighted the whole issue, right, when the renminbi depreciated quite substantially. That's right. If you fast forward to today, if you had invested during that time, you'd be up by close to, I last checked, the hair share market was up 37% for the bottom. That's only if you can predict the future and, uh, and know what's going to happen next, right? Obviously. But, but like I said, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions, but we are of the view that um, I think there's some form of stability in the currency now. I think there's a stability in the property market. And at the same time, I also think that uh, supply-side reforms are happening. And so, therefore, you're starting to see, for example, coal mines being shut down, steel mines being shut down, and so forth. So these all will stabilize the economy. And 
6% growth is decent growth. Yeah, 6% growth is decent growth, but at the same time, it is a slowdown, right? And uh, the prospects of a hard landing still refuses to be uh, taken off the table. So, you know, how much of the uh, fundamentals of the China's economy is feeding into your long bullish outlook on China? Well, if you look at, for example, um, in, the, in the last couple of months, you've seen the IP numbers, uh, PMI numbers, right? You've seen retail sales. All of this started to stabilize. In fact, they've gone up, right? You've also started to see in tier one uh, cities in China, for example, uh, their record high property companies. Today, you know, what is really happening now is that um, there's a lot of uh, optimism because people have a lot of cash in the system and they want to invest. Previously, they they invested in the uh, Asia market. They all got burnt and now they're putting it back into the property market. And you know Chinese, right? They want hard assets. But, but Patrick, you know, um, just looking at the market and looking at uh, the policy responses, I mean, the Chinese market, we're told a few years ago, crashed by a few trillion bucks, right? That's the headline. Yeah. And then the government starts scrambling to try to see what they can do to ease the pain of people. Then that is a story that's not reflective of a government that's comfortable with the vagaries of the market. So how do you get comfortable investing in a market like China? Extremely volatile and a lot of people even say that you don't even know whether you can trust the numbers. Well, this, like I said, you know, there's a lot of skepticism. Uh, I think some of them are warranted. Uh, but if, if I look at it from a half glass full, uh, instead of half glass empty, look, right? So look at a number of patents globally which are being registered in, in the world, right? Chinese companies have the largest, right? Which is the largest company compared to Cisco? It's Huawei. Look at Oppo. Oppo today is the largest, you know, potentially a largest smartphone company uh, in, in the world, right? Bigger than Apple and so forth. They're selling more units, obviously, maybe in revenue terms. So with the RQ fee license, for example, in the future, investors ourselves are able to tap into these markets and invest in them, right? Now, what we are looking at in terms of the volatility and the vagueness, for example, right, are actually just a microcosm of it. Today, you've got Alibaba, you've got Tencent. These are high-tech companies which are globally recognized today, right? These are something which, you know, which we invest in, for example, right? And that we are very excited about. At the same time, you've also got the new China, which we are very excited about, what we call the fourth industrial revolution, right? Which mm-hmm. means like artificial intelligence companies. We've got pharma companies. We've got, for example, robotic companies. All of them have not been in really enlisted yet. So with an RQV license, it potentially gives us opportunity. Uh, do you have any, say, contingency plans, if I may use the word, like say, you know, if let's say the Chinese regulators then step in with, say, heightened capital controls? Capital controls has been a theme, you know, of late when it comes to the Chinese market. Do you have those kind of contingency plans in place? Um, to be precise about this, right, the RQ fee license is a move away from the Q fee license because it allows offshore renminbi to be settled, right? As mm-hmm. well, so okay. that is that is a key. And then, what, what does that mean? Uh, that, does that mean that you can take out your money anytime yeah, you want yeah. to? So there is oh. no there is no real restrictions. Uh, if you think about all the currency settlement issues, uh, there is li- daily liquidity. Uh, there is no lockup period for open ended funds. So basically, it gives you a sense that the Chinese government is moving away from a very closed environment to a now a very more open ended environment, right? Which means that at the end of the day, no longer term. We think that the internalization of the renminbi will be eminent. The second point is the AHA market eventually will be included in the, for example, the MSCI, for example, mm-hmm. right? And that is going to be a big move change, I think. So we have to be ready. Talk to us about more about this A-share thing. Why is it so appealing? 
Well, the ASA basically gives us access to onshore companies, which, okay, but which, why, are, which are not listed in the, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Okay, but why are these companies so appealing? I mean, the conventional immediate response to when you mention the word Asia is that they are very risky propositions and uh, they're very, very volatile and uh, perhaps the management are kind of an unknown quantity. But I'm sure there is uh, the appealing side to Asia as well. Yes, like I said, you know, uh, the, 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 the quality of the companies that you see today uh, may not be that apparent because, firstly, most of these companies disclose most of the information in Mandarin, in Chinese, right? So as they internationalize over the long term, we believe that it gives us an opportunity to invest in these companies, number one. Number two, I think Chinese capital markets will start to start to liberalize and adopt better corporate governance which I think is the mantra of what the volatility and all the opaqueness that you talked about early on, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, and so I, I think as you move away from an emerging market to a more developing and developed market, which China is today, right, and the adoption of the internalization of the B, you will start to see all these corporate governance issues being uh, of the past. I'm not saying that it's going to go over, away, but you've seen that in Malaysia, you've seen that in emerging markets in ASEAN as well. And so as you develop more, you know, you get more and more better corporate governance. And so... That will address it. And I think that uh, if you identify good companies in these markets, then you should invest in them. So you also talked about fixed income a little bit. Are, yeah. are these also quite attractive compared to the Asia's? Absolutely. I mean, if you, t- you talk to my uh, fixed income um, head of credit and, and, and the head of uh, fixed income, for example, you know, today, um, a lot of our clients want yield as well. Yes. Right. And they want to invest offshore. Chinese Financial markets, especially in the bond market, is very, very liquid. It's one of the largest in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, they are tapping into the market to basically uh, you know, get more liquidity. right? And so guys like us who are investors offshore want to get access to this because they are you know, of good quality. Right, um, and they gave you due decent yield, so uh, you know that's not a market issue. So, what what are the yields right now for the fixed income um, instruments in China, and also uh, are there any currency risks? I know the renminbi or the yuan has been extremely stable, even though there was that big shock uh, that you talked about last year. Uh, what are the risks uh, involved in investing in fixed income in China? Well, typically, it's, it's, no, it's, it's the same kind of risk that you invest in uh, the equity market. Um, you have to look at the credit, um, you know, uh, and we spend a lot of time looking at a lot of the credit, particularly in companies like the property sector, which is a very big issue of the fixed income instruments. Uh, we still, currently, we still stick to the, the more of the blue uh, corporate uh, credit that we have. Um, and, um, and in terms of the currency risk, I think uh, the currency have stabilized. Um, although I think there's going to be a minor de- a devaluation of the renminbi uh, versus the US dollar. Uh, but from a basket point of view, uh, I think the renminbi should be more stable than last year. We are speaking to Patrick Chang, who is Chief Investments Officer for CIMB Principal. And CIMB Principal became one of the first asset management companies in Malaysia to score what's called the Remimi Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor. We're talking about whether it's the right time to get back into China. Coming up next, a closer look into the investable sectors in China. You're listening to the SNM Show, a show that's all about what's working, what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Julian Ng, together with my colleague Tan Chung Han, and our guest today is Patrick Chang. CIO of CIMB Principal. We are asking the question of whether it's the right time to get into China. Patrick, you talked about A-shares, you talked about fixed income. What are some of the other themes that still dominate in China? For example, is tech now preferable to the previous darling of the stock market, which is manufacturing? 
Um, good question. Um, what we are investing in China today are what we call the fourth industrial revolution sectors, which means that they are global competitive, they are growing, uh, and basically they are geared towards um, high-tech as well as IC foundries, biological farmers, uh, robotics, automation, and so forth, right? So these are the sectors which are high growth. Uh, they may have high PEs, but uh, if you look at Tencent, for example, which we've invested in for a while, uh, they have, you know, uh, gone up by 10 times in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Surprising uh, the, for a company called Tencent, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, but then what about, say, our companies that are linked to the domestic consumption space? You know, because as we know, they are moving away from the manufacturing-driven kind of economy uh, to uh, economic growth that's led by consumption. So do you uh, spot any potential there? Well, selectively, uh, we, we are quite bullish on some of the automakers. Um, I think uh, consumption in the auto space continues to be, especially on the high-end sector, uh, and also some of the companies which are geared towards the SUV sector, for example. Uh, and so these are the companies. But I think if you think about, for example, like the consumer staple companies, there is a lot of supply issues. There's a lot of build-out in inventory and so forth. Uh, so we're quite concerned about that. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, we like the consumer discretionary sector. Whatever happened to those fears about shadow banking, which is uh, talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of uh, Chinese debt that is um, you know, under the radar of the system that promises to blow up sometime soon? Um, well, we've heard about this for many, many years. right? I, I remember um, when I went to a conference in Hong Kong once, and uh, in that whole conference, it was dedicated to uh, shadow banking. And I came out from there and I was so worried, I decided that I wanted to sell all my H-share stocks at the time when I was investing in China. And, and I, you probably would have been right at that time if you had sold it off as well because look how they've performed, right? Yeah, may, well, particularly for the banking uh, stocks, like, right? I mean, they are, they are probably half by another. But you, if you look at what really is happening in the shadow banking state, right? You know, you know, basically they issued a lot of wealth management products and so forth, you know, um, and that has gone, some of them has gone belly up. But I think the Chinese economy and the Chinese financial market is actually quite a close-ended market, right? And so it's quite well-contained. It's a little bit like Japan, right? You look at the amount of debt that Japan is creating, right? It is self-contained. Is right? this the classic kicking the can down the road where the government is in control and, uh, you know, forcefully trying to avoid a But isn't up. the U.S. king in the can as well? Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, so, so um, if you, my argument is that if you're issuing local bonds and you're, you're containing within this, the, 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 your own country, I think mm-hmm. you don't really have an issue yet, right? But at the same time, the Chinese government is quite realistic, right? They do know they have an issue, right? And, and so what they, they've done in the last one and a half years is to reform the SOEs, they have uh, initiated a lot of supply-side uh, reforms, uh, particularly on the basic materials uh, sector. And so these are the companies which are also are quite leveraged, right? And steel companies and coal companies, for example. And so that has started to, to show up in terms of the MPLs. MPLs are started to stabilize. Um, and so, you know, uh, for now, I think uh, we're not that concerned about that. But are the Chinese risks as contained as you make them out to be either? Because, you know, if you look at the dodgy debts that contributed to the uh, most recent GFC, and then when you consider now how China is certainly, you know, stepping up their game when it comes to being a global leader, again, are they as mitigated? Are they, are they as contained as, uh, you know, as you perceive them to be? Well, I think they are quite contained. Um, you know, um, as long as... As long as, as, long as they stay communist... 
I didn't say that. You can control, <laughs> you can control whatever that comes out of well, that. Well, potentially as but, well. But, but to add to that, I mean, they are liberalizing their markets also. In, in a sense, they are becoming less communist also. If they become less communist, does that then expose you know, the rest of the world to more risks from their you know, over-leveraged uh, nature right now? But who's really lending the money? The local governments, right? Right, or the the, the 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 PBOC, for example, right. So it's 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 an in-house lending, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. So you know you can circulate your in-house lending for a long, long time, as long as interest rates don't go up too high, as long as you don't have huge amounts of capital outflows, which is why it's well contained. Then yeah, I don't see an issue. Maybe I'm very too bullish for my own good, but you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but I, I I don't see that really happening because, like I said, right, if I had. Sold out all my stocks in 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 the the the, uh, the HA market. Uh, I made some you know quite a bit of rally as well the last couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Patrick, I also want to ask you how you're going to tie up uh, new funds that might be launched under this RQ fee with a China ETF that CIMB manages, uh, which I think that ETF invests into fifty of China's largest stocks. From your perspective, is that enough? Uh, just buying into that ETF is that enough? Uh, good enough exposure into China? Well, the way we look at our our, our QFI license is that, firstly, uh, we want to enhance returns for our existing funds which invest in China, right? Secondly, potentially, uh, we're still talking about that, right? Is that we may launch a dedicated A share, for example, or a dedicated fixed income product for uh, investors who want to have access to those markets, right? Uh, or even maybe even a balanced fund, for example, right? So you have equities versus uh, fixed income. And so that's uh, quite uh, uh, fashionable these days uh, because you get, you know, uh, we don't really know what direction a fixed income is and therefore you can hedge a bit, a little bit. The returns may be a little bit lower, but it's it's a bit more low vol. Um, so those those two, uh, three kind of products uh, uh, are something which we are looking into, like, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. But we were still waiting for our QFE quarter. So how it works is you get a license and you bid for a quarter. And once you get a quarter, you can utilize it for your existing funds or new funds. And if you think that you want to have more, then you apply for more. So from an asset allocation perspective, how much uh, percentage of the funds would you dedicate as an investment into China compared with the rest of the world? Well, I mean, if, if you look at uh, most of our benchmarks, um, like MSCI, China, uh, Asia Pack, you know, at least I would say maybe about a quarter of that is in China, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so out of that quarter, you can allocate between either you want to be in A share or eventually into these kind of uh, markets like A share, for example. Quick word on valuations in China. How do they look? What valuations? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> No, I think I think I think the, uh, uh, well, if you look at the valuations, I think the market is trading about ten or eleven times PE, right? Um, it's still cheap compared to what it was, but obviously the growth is slowed down. Can trust that? Can trust that? This ten, eleven times. <sighs> well, that's IBES, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's consensus, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's. I think it's still cheap, uh, but one has to pick and choose the the battles out there, and that is that. I think if you were to move away. From the old school um, brick and mortar businesses and the you know basic materials, and to start investing into high tech automated companies and so forth, then I think you will make a lot of money out of it in China. 
All right. Thanks so much, Patrick, for joining us this morning. And that was Patrick Chang, CIO of CIMB Principal. And this morning we have been talking about whether it's the right time to get back into China. This is in conjunction with a CIMB Principal recently becoming the first asset management company in Malaysia to obtain the renminbi qualified foreign institutional investor. I'm Julian Ng, together with Tan Chung Han for the SM Show BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.